Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Door Creek Church. We're glad that you are here with us this morning. If you're a guest, thank you for joining us. Isn't it great singing together like that? Isn't that great? Thank you for those who are serving on our worship and production teams. Uh, thank you for just allowing us to enter into this place in that way. My name is Mark, one of the pastors here, uh, and uh, it is certainly a pleasure to be with you as we continue in this series that we've been in called Big Mistake Lesson Learned. Big Mistake Lesson Learned. We've had some incredible messages. Uh, I'm here to, for our third installment uh, in this series. And so as I was just preparing for this weekend, I was like, okay, man, what is like one of my biggest mistakes? Right, and uh, yeah, that was my, I was like, oh, okay, well, and then, you know, I was talking to my wife, Cassie, and she was like, well, you could add this and this. <clears throat> she didn't, yeah, okay. Uh, so, um, I'm about to make the biggest mistake I've ever made, and that is telling you my biggest mistake. So, here we go. So, uh, this story uh, really surrounds uh, this image right here. Uh, do you guys remember these? Disposable cameras, okay, for those of you like under 30, uh, iPhones didn't always exist. Uh, and so we had to use these things. Um, and, and, uh, I remember using these and, uh, anyway, so, uh, this, this is like the dumbest thing I have, I have ever done. And, uh, you will instantly feel better about yourself just by listening to this story. I'm sure, uh, I was in college and, uh, you already know what kind of story it's going to be. I was in college and, uh, hanging out with some friends after work, we're at a restaurant and uh, we just start doing what some other guys do. We're like, hey, and, uh, you know, kind of jeering each other on and challenging each other. And I don't remember exactly how it started, but, but where we were at is in Oklahoma. I didn't grow up in Oklahoma, but I went to school in Oklahoma. And my buddies had grown up in Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, uh, uh, beef is what's for dinner, right? Beef is this cattle, uh, huge industry uh, in Oklahoma. And they said, well, cow tipping is easy. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> What do you mean cow tipping's easy? And he said, well, cows are asleep. So you can just walk right up to them. What's really hard is to walk up to a cow in a cow pasture and try and, try and touch a cow that's awake. And I said, I could do that. And he said, no, you can't. I said, yes, I could. He said, no, you can't. So you get the idea. So this sets the table. So we're like, all right, we're going to do this. And it's late at night, all right? Let's, let's not say how late it is, but it's late at night. And so I'm like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over to Walmart. I'm going to purchase one of these fine pieces of equipment. And uh, so that I can go like selfie style, like snap myself, uh, uh, snap a picture of myself, uh, being able to touch a cow who is, who is awake inside the pen and prove you guys wrong. So what do we do? Uh, there was uh, another college. It was a Catholic college, had an active monastery on campus and they had a pasture around this monastery. So we're like, let's go there. So we went in there and uh, we, we got into the cow uh, pasture or pen and, and there, if you know the right terms, I apologize. Okay, just bear with me. But we, we got in there and we, we just complete fools of ourselves running around this pasture trying to touch a cow. And sure enough, like they got spooked just by seeing us. And so they were running around, we're running around trying to chase them. We can't, we can't do it. And we're just laughing and, but I'm determined. I'm like, no, we're gonna do this. So I survey the pasture, all right? And I survey the fenced in area and I say, hey guys, look over there, there's like a 20 to 30 foot wide gate that leads into a smaller penned in area. I said, let's, because at this time we had learned how to corral cows. And I said, let's, let's corral the cows into this smaller area. 
and then you guys can sneak around behind them and they'll walk back through the gate and I'll be able, I'll be able to do what I've set out to do, this noble, noble venture, okay? <laughs> well, sure enough, we corralled the cows in there and it is really late at night. The moon wasn't that bright. And what I didn't realize once the cows got in there was that it was below the horizon, which meant I literally could not see anything. I couldn't see like where they were. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. So I'm standing in the middle of this gate, right? That's like 20, 30 feet wide. And all these cows are somewhere in this smaller pen. And my buddies, you know, we're trying to yell to each other. Where are you at? We're almost there. And all of a sudden I hear the words. I hear the words, here they come. Here they come. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, wait, what's that sound? It's not thunder, and the cows aren't walking. (laughs) They're running, and it hits me. Like, the gravity of the situation at that point still hadn't struck me that I'm standing in the middle of this 20, 30-foot-wide gate with all these cows coming at me. And, like, all my years of wisdom had, had boiled down to this one point, and I said, I have this. I will use the flash, and it will flood the whole field with light. And, and I'll be able to see where the cows are at, and then I can move. Well, you guys remember these things? You had to, like, wind them up, and like, a, like at a button. So I'm standing there, right, and I hear these cattle coming, and my buddies are like, here they come, and it's like the sound of thunder, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> holding down the button, waiting for the light to show that it's charged. And I just stand there, and I'm like, okay, here we go. This is going to be great. And I flash the camera. I take the picture. And as soon as I flash... No closer than me to the front row, like 10, 15 feet. Eyes. All the way across. And it hits me. The gravity of the moment hits me. The big mistake I had just made. And by God's grace, by God's grace, the flash of the camera had spooked them just enough that they split right in front of me and ran right past me. And I had my chance to touch a cow, but I was so scared. I couldn't move. I was just standing there like this, you know, and, and my buddies are like, did you do it? Did you do it? And I'm like, I almost died, guys. That was a bad idea. Like, what in the world were we thinking? That was stupid. Don't ever, ever do that again. And so there you go. So now you can say, you know someone whose life was saved because of a disposable camera. Uh, you've always wanted to say that, I know. Add that to your bucket list. Uh, so you have these moments in our lives, like are these great mistakes, and hopefully yours wasn't as dumb as mine, but maybe these moments where we just go, oh man, don't ever, ever, ever do that again. Never do that. Never do that again. And we remind each other, right? And sometimes when we reunite with friends or with family, we remind ourselves in kind of a joking way, sometimes a serious way, like, oh man, never, ever do that again. Well, it turns out that Moses actually did this as well with the Israelites. You see, he was about to, uh, he was standing there, uh, the whole Israelite nation about to enter the promised land. Moses, because of a big mistake that he made, wasn't able to enter the promised land, but, but the generations under him were about to enter. And he was telling them the mistakes of their parents, the mistakes that they had made in their journey to get where they were, reminding them of God's promises. And he says this, this uh, in, in verse nine of chapter 24, he says, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came out of Egypt. 
And this is the, uh, what he's referring to, we find in the book of Numbers, we're gonna focus on this this morning, this big mistake that Miriam made. And we know it was a big mistake because we have a whole chapter dedicated in, into the, in the book of Numbers that we'll read, but also that it's referenced again when Moses is telling the people, hey, hey, hey remember this, don't, don't, do that. So let's catch up with where they're at. Let's look at this map together. Uh, this is uh, modern day Egypt. You have modern day Israel up there. Uh, so uh, Exodus, the Israelites uh, exit Egypt. They spend a lot of time down here in Mount Sinai. They journey up and uh, they're up here ready to enter into the promised land. This is where the book of Deuteronomy takes place. It literally means like the second, second giving of the law because all those who came out of Egypt, they have passed away. It is their children's children and uh, who will be entering into the promised land. And so Moses is telling them all that has happened and he's referring a lot to what happened in the book of Numbers. Numbers, uh, and the fourth book of the Bible is uh, kind of a deceiving title. It's not a, it's not a book of arithmetic. Uh, and Moses does number the people at the beginning, but it's a, it's, a, it's a book that chronicles their journey. And a lot of crazy things happen along the way, including what happened to Miriam. So when Moses was traveling with the people, God had given them a lot of instructions. All right, God had given them a lot of instructions. One of the instructions he gave them was how to set up camp. And along the way, they set up camp. Remember, this is millions and millions of people. And uh, one artist's rendition looks something like this. This is based off what the scriptures tell us, how God instructed them. You know, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So three of you up here, three of you down there, three of you this way, three of you that way. It, look, it might have looked something like this. At the middle of everyone was, was the tabernacle, right? The tent of meeting. And God manifested himself in a very physical way. He wanted everyone to know that God was at the center of the Israelites. It was a physical demonstration of what their heart attitude was supposed to be. And uh, when he was present, they knew, I mean, kind of this depiction of a, of a cloud you see there, uh, a very physical spectacle. All right, we're gonna be celebrating 4th of July soon, right? And, and what do we see all over the place? Red, white, and blue, right? Flags and, and all these things because we use visuals to help remind us of important people, of important times, of important places. And God used this very visual experience of, of this cloud. So when the cloud came down, everyone paid attention. I love this uh, depiction because you have maybe a father with his son or a daughter just looking over the camp. And he says, look, 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 God is coming down. So come with me into that time. Put yourself there. You're going about your business, doing whatever you're doing, doing whatever they did. And all of a sudden, the cloud of the Lord comes down. And the flurry of activity of anticipation starts among the Israelites. What is God going to say? What is he going to do? What are we going to learn? Is he going to tell Moses that we, need to, that we need to move to the next place? You know, are we going to get a new promise? What, what is going to happen here? And then you see the cloud lift and the telephone game begins. Telephone game existed long before the telephone. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And finally it gets to you and you hear the news and you're like, what? No way. Miriam has leprosy. What did she do? Well, who is Miriam? Miriam was Moses' older sister. Miriam was partly responsible for, for Moses 
even being alive because when he was a baby uh, in Egypt, the Pharaoh declared a genocide of, of all the baby boys who were being uh, born to, to stop the Israelite nation from, from, uh, from growing in numbers. And so Moses' mom, along with the help of his older sister Miriam, helped him escape. If it wasn't for Miriam as well, she followed Moses in the baskets cool story in Exodus and connected Moses' mom so that he could be her nanny, his nanny, right? Uh, help him be raised. And so I'm sure there was a lot of, uh, oh man, thank you God for allowing me to do that. This is Miriam's, uh, Miriam was Moses' older sister. Also, we find out that as God sets up the Israelite nation, he sets up Miriam as the first prophetess. So Moses' other brother Aaron is the first high priest. Moses is obviously kind of the, the conduit that God uses to speak uh, primarily to his people. Miriam is the first high priest. Miriam is a very important figurehead. People knew who Miriam was. It was probably common for women to just look up to Miriam. What is Miriam doing? I want to be like Miriam. How would Miriam uh, instruct us to do this as she led the women in that day and age? And all of a sudden you find out she has leprosy. What did she do? Well, let's read that together. Uh, Numbers 12, verse 1 says this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. So his older sister, his older brother, Aaron's the high priest, Miriam the prophetess, began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. And she says, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? So Miriam, I gave you the history of who she was. She's seen Moses grow up. Miriam was in rags uh, and she saw her brother grow up in riches. Miriam had this incredible story of helping her brother escape genocide and now she is a prophetess in the land. She had received visions and she was doing great works in the land and she's looking at Moses and going, Aaron, Moses keeps making lots and lots of mistakes. What is he doing? She had clear prejudice against who he chose to marry. Uh, Cushite wife of the land of Cush, probably the Northeast Africa area. Uh, prejudice probably for his wife's color of skin and origin. Yes, prejudice also uh, because Moses married outside the Israelite camp, but her prejudice was a veil for her true heart attitude. She looked at her brother Moses. She's speaking against him with his brother Aaron, and she's like, he doesn't deserve that. Like, God's used us. Look at how God has used us, even in Moses' own life. Aaron, you had to help Moses talk to Pharaoh. He couldn't even do that on his own. Why does Moses have to be number one? Hasn't God also used us? But then we read this at the end of verse two. It says, and the Lord heard this. <laughs> Parents, have you ever been around the corner and listened to your kids talking and they, know, they don't know that you're listening? at your place of business or work, have you ever seen or maybe been a part of, unfortunately, uh, in some gossip or having a conversation you shouldn't have, not knowing that your boss could hear you the whole time? 
And the Lord acts swiftly and definitively when he heard this. And, he, and uh, it says, you know, the Lord said, hey, come to the tent of meeting right now, right? It's, it's like, it's like the, if you're in school, the principal saying, uh, you need to come to the office right now, right? Uh, your boss telling you, hey, in my office now. And you know in the tone of his voice, this is not going to be, this is not going to be good. And not only that, but we read Numbers, jump to verse five, it says this. It says, when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words, even worse, <laughs> right? You've already been called to the office. It's even worse when you get called to the office and your boss looks at you and says, listen up, <laughs> right? This is what the Lord said to them. He said, when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, not uh, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid? to speak against my servant Moses. Moses calls out Miriam and Aaron and he says, what are you doing? I speak with Moses face to face. Moses was with God at Mount Sinai seeing the, the form of the Lord. His countenance was changed when he came back down just by being in God's presence. He says, Miriam, I, I speak to you in visions, in, in riddles. I speak to Moses face to face, clearly. He knows, he knows my form. Why were you not afraid? Why were you speaking against him? Because in speaking against him, you were actually speaking against me. And we know why Miriam was speaking against him because back in verse uh, two, when it said, when she just asked that question, hasn't the Lord also spoken through us? Hasn't the Lord also spoken through us? Why does Moses have to be number one? My first question for you this morning is, have you been there? Are you there? Are you there in your place of work? Is there someone else? You have more tenure, you have more experience, and yet the other person got the promotion that you were hoping for. You work harder and you put in more hours than anyone else. And yet the other person who doesn't work twice as hard as you do, who doesn't deserve it, they get the platform that you've been desiring. And in your heart, you look at them and you say, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve that. I deserve that. What about with your friends? And they post pictures on social media of maybe the vacation they took or maybe the new uh, house they bought or uh, the new car or maybe something that really cool has happened in their life. And you hit the like button right on Instagram, the little heart, or maybe a Facebook, a little thumbs up. And uh, maybe even put a comment like, oh, praise God, you know, so happy for you. But in your heart, in your heart, you look at them and you say, they don't deserve that. I know what they do with their time. I know what they do with their money. I know where they came from. They don't deserve that. What about in our families? This is a family matter, by the way. So this is Moses and his brother and his sister. 
What about our families? Whether it be your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad, your grandpa, your grandma, your cousin, whoever it is, your grandchild, whoever it is. Do you ever look at a relationship that they're able to attain or maybe a position that they're able to acquire a platform or maybe something that they're able to uh, come into possession of? Do you ever look at them and in your heart of hearts, do you say, they don't deserve that? They don't deserve that. That's not fair. I've put way more effort into this than they have. How come they get the platform? How come they get to be number one? Have you been there? Are you there right now? And the hard part about that whole attitude is just that we're, we're pointing the finger and it's that whole illustration where there's three fingers pointing back at us every time we say out of jealousy and envy and conceit and rivalry, they don't deserve that. We're really saying, because I do. I deserve that platform. I deserve that relationship. I deserve that. Not them. I've got way more skin in this game than they do. I deserve what they have. Jealousy is an awful thing, this envy. And so uh, Leonard Bernstein, who is a, a prominent a conductor of the 20th century, if you, if you enjoy music, uh, especially uh, classical art, I would encourage you to look up Leonard Bernstein. He's a phenomenal conductor. So someone asked him one time, a reporter asked him, Leonard Bernstein, Mr. Bernstein, Maybe they called him Dr. B. I don't know. They asked him. They said, what is the most difficult instrument to play? You know, so he's, he's led so many phenomenal orchestras all around. What's the most difficult instrument to play? Is it the trumpet? Is it the violin? Maybe, maybe it's the timpani. What is the most difficult instrument to play? And Leonard responded in this way. He said, the second fiddle. The second fiddle is the most difficult instrument to play. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Gary Allen, despite what you think of Gary Allen, Gary Allen understood envy because he said this. He said, you can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. There's a philosopher uh, out of uh, England. His name is uh, Bertrand Russell. And he talks about envy and he kind of captures the essence of envy really well when he, when he puts it this way. He says, envy consists in seeing things never in themselves, but only in their, in their relations. If you desire glory, you may be envy of Napoleon. But Napoleon envied Caesar. Caesar envied Alexander. Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never even existed. And we laugh because it's funny, but we also laugh because it's true. So many times when we have this rival spirit, this envy, we create enemies in our heart of sometimes the closest people in our life, our family, our friends, our coworkers, whoever it may be. And it's really just one-sided. They may be completely uh, oblivious to, to your envy toward them. But in our hearts and in our minds, it's this like, oh, I'm going to get one up on you. You don't deserve that. I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going I'm to get, get it the next time. I'm going to post a better picture. <laughs> right? It's one-sided. It doesn't even really exist. 
There's two characters who really embody what we're talking about. And it's these guys. <laughs> so uh, Toy Story 4, right now in theaters. No spoilers, please. I have not seen it yet. I plan to. But in 1995, the world was changed when Pixar introduced this animated film called Toy Story. And we were introduced to two very lovable, very relatable lead characters played by Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, voiced by them anyways, Woody and Buzz Lightyear, right? And, uh, and so, you know, the, the plot of the movie, um, you know, it's, it's 24 years old. So if you don't know the plot, come on, come on, people, okay? Um, <laughs> But Woody is Andy's favorite toy, right? He's Andy's favorite toy. Buzz comes in the picture, and here we go. Rivalry, jealousy, envy, and it drives Woody to do some crazy things. He tries to get rid of Buzz, and, and it's one-sided. Buzz doesn't even realize he's a toy, right? He thinks he's a space ranger. It's part of the fun of the movie, okay, people? Um, but, but on and on the movie goes, and it's lighthearted and it's animated, but it grabs us because it captures the tension in our own hearts, that oftentimes, like Miriam, we find ourselves like Woody, jealous, envious. We want to be number one. And we can actually learn something from these guys. I bet you didn't expect that this morning. We can actually learn something from these guys. Because you see, towards the end of the movie, there's this character called Sid, who's kind of set up to be the villain, if you will. And uh, they are awaiting their destruction as they're captured in Sid's bedroom and he's going to blow him up or something. And, uh, but but it's, it's the fruit of their jealousy. It's the fruit of their envy, the consequences of their action that has got them to this point of, of destruction. And there's this beautiful moment uh, where, where Woody realizes, he realizes the incredible irony that the very person he was trying to get rid of the entire time is the only person who can save him from this terrible thing, right? And Buzz, after he realizes he's a toy and goes through this toy depression phase, <laughs> looks at the bottom of his foot and, and sees the, in the Sharpie Andy written on the bottom of his foot and realizes, oh no, I am loved. I do have a purpose. And, and together they, they escape. And it's a, it's a great movie, right? It ends with them like flying and something in a car. It's great. Fantastic, go see it again. But the irony, the irony that the entire movie, Woody's trying to get rid of Buzz, and at the end of the day, he needs Buzz to actually survive is the same irony that we see in the scripture. You see, Miriam has this whole heart attitude, and she pulls Aaron into it, where she says, we don't need Moses. Who is this guy, Moses? Why would God choose our younger brother? We've done so many other things, probably better and greater things than he. He's a screw-up. Why is God using him? But when the cloud lifts, and Miriam is left in a leprous uh, skin and leprosy is just the word that we're given. It was some kind of skin disease. It actually explains it really graphically in the scriptures uh, in, in in Numbers chapter twelve. I encourage you to to read that. But but just it was a death sentence. Moses and Aaron see that and Aaron sees it and he understands his sin. He recognizes his sin. He turns to Moses and he says this. He says, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. 
And Aaron understands, he recognizes his sin, he recognizes his big mistake along with Miriam, and he recognizes that the very person that they were speaking against is the only person that can save them. Aaron is the high priest and he recognizes he can't even intercede for his own sister. Only Moses can. And so Moses does. And and that's how the story is finished. Moses intercedes. He asks God to heal Miriam. God responds in his grace and in his mercy as he does. He heals Miriam. Miriam still has to stay outside the camp for seven days because she had been cleansed of a skin disease and it was something that they instructed anyone to do who had been purified. They still had to remain outside the camp for seven days. Miriam still had to live with some consequence of her sin. But Aaron had this heart attitude change and he recognized his mistake. And you see, recognizing our mistake isn't necessarily the hardest part. Recognizing our mistake sometimes is easier and sometimes we give ourselves too much credit, but we stop short. Because when we recognize our big mistake, we have a better opportunity to understand our Savior. And you see, Moses in this passage, Moses points us to Christ. Miriam and Aaron are a reflection of us. Miriam wanted more power. She wanted more authority. In our own hearts, we struggle with with envy and with jealousy, with this rival spirit. And pride is at the heart of it all as well. And so we just want more. We want the next best thing. We don't want to play second fiddle. We want to play first fiddle, Mr. Bernstein, right? We want to be number one. But in the scriptures, we clearly see that Christ gave up being number one. Christ gave up everything he had to become nothing for for us. Christ is the antithesis of what Miriam was, of what we are in our hearts so often. Miriam, as we read in the first part of verse one, wanted to oppress with her prejudice and with her conniving to try and get into the lead role. But Christ, as we read, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and then in Galatians 5, 1, Christ came to set us free, not to oppress us, not to put us down, but to free us because he came to serve, not to be served, to give his life a ransom for many. So Aaron begins to understand, he recognizes his sin and he understands his savior in this way. And so every time that we find ourselves with this heart attitude of they don't deserve that, you don't deserve that, I deserve that, I want that position, I want that platform, I want that relationship, whatever it is in your life, we must take that opportunity to understand our savior who gave up everything he deserved to give us what we don't deserve. Because what we don't deserve is access to a faithful God who gives us his unfailing love and his kindness and his grace and his mercy. What we don't deserve is access to a God who gives us, uh, just is patient with us. Who in his grace, his mercy, sent his son to die for us. We want what we don't deserve and God has already given us God has already given us what we don't deserve. I want to read this quote. A guy by the name of Scott Saul is a pastor down in Nashville. 
And uh, he says this, he says this when it comes to Christ and what he's given up for us. He says, King Jesus, whose kingdom is forever and whose government will always increase, who looks at every square inch of his universe and declares, mine, won this right by sacrificing himself. He gained, exalt- he gained exaltation by taking the low position. Christ, the Prince of Peace, took off his royal robe and placed it on us. He handed us his sword, making himself vulnerable to us, and we used it against him. But he did not strike back. Instead, he did nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility counted us more significant than himself, looking not to his own interests, but to the great need of a humanity dying from a fixation on itself. Through the rightful heir, though the rightful heir to the throne, Jesus made himself nothing, set aside his glory, and became obedient to death on the cross, all to secure our flourishing. And I want to highlight just one part of what he said. He said this, but in what? What is that word? But in humility counted us more significant than himself. I love this next phrase, looking not to his own interest, but to the great need of a humanity dying from a fixation on itself. Is that not what we struggle with? a constant fixation on ourself, what we think we need, what we think we want, what we think we deserve. So humility is the key. Christ embodied humility. In the third verse of this chapter of Numbers that we've been in, it says this. Notice how it's in parentheses. It says, now Moses was the very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Uh, we believe this was probably an editorial note because um, Moses was the author of these first five books. Sometimes they refer to, uh, the, they refer to them as the books of Moses. It'd be kind of weird if Moses wrote this about himself. <laughs> but we're given this through the Holy Spirit. We're given this in the scriptures to help us understand the dichotomy of the heart attitude of someone who is conceited, who thinks they deserve something more and someone who understands what they don't deserve and being humble. So how do we be humble? How do we embody humility? I think we can take a cue from a specific psalm. I love this psalm, Psalm 131. Psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. And right here, this psalm helps us understand the responsibility that we have of our own hearts and our own minds when it comes to this characteristic of God of humility. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul with me. Is that not just a beautiful picture? The child who is calm, who is disciplined next to his mother and how sweet that looks, the contentment, the security. Last verse is just simply, oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is what has already been given to us, not in what we should try to attain for us. Our hope is in what Christ has already given us by giving up everything and offering us what we don't deserve. Our hope is not in trying to attain the thing that we think we deserve. Humility, 
It's a hard thing. We can't, you can't check the box on humility, right? You, you can't, oh, I'm humble. Cross that one off. Let's move on to the next one. Because you can, be the, you can we've, we've experienced this, especially those of us who've lived uh, the Christian life for quite some time. You can go like a great period. We're like, man, okay, some great humility has happened. And then like in one hour, it's like, whoops. <laughs> it's just in every moment, every moment. I love that scripture. I, so that scripture for me is I have it in my office. I just, I look at it all the time because it's a constant reminder for me. My eyes are not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not consider things too great or too marvelous for me to understand. It's just this humble recognizing what Miriam and Aaron didn't, that God actually does know better and taking on the personal responsibility of just calming and quieting our souls in this way. I want to speak really quickly to just ambition. (laughs) So we can look at Miriam, we can look at Aaron, and in a lot of ways, if it was a modern day story, we would actually rally for them, right? Yeah, that's right, you go get them. You have worked harder, you do have a greater story. He's a goof, you know. You do deserve that. And so, and today we have a lot, we read about a lot of leadership material and just in general about, about having a good drive uh, and, and ambition, and those are good things. Those are great vehicles that God will use and can use in your life to accomplish things that you can't even imagine. But they're only great vehicles if you fill them with God's characteristics in your life. Goodness, kindness, mercy, love, humility, obedience. When we fuel our ambition and our drive with these things, we can go great distances. But when we fuel our ambition and our drive with what Miriam did, jealousy, envy, a rival spirit, conceit, even bitterness, it's just destructive. It's just destructive. We hurt ourselves, we hurt those around us. So it is a good thing to be ambitious. It is a good thing to have drive, to pursue what God has for us in our lives, but we need to do it with the right heart attitude, the right heart attitude of humility. So my last question for us as we just wrap up this morning is just where are you right now? We looked at three, with three main characters in this story. We have Miriam who's just kind of stuck in this heart attitude of I deserve that. You don't deserve that. This envy, this jealousy, this conceit. We see Aaron in this story who's just kind of uh, uh, pictured as understanding, recognizing his sin, understanding who the Savior really is. Are you there this morning where you need to maybe grow in that, where you do recognize your sin, but you're not taking the opportunity in your recognition of your big mistake. You're not taking the opportunity to better understand Christ. And we should all strive, as Moses illustrated, we should all strive to just walk forward in humility. Every day, relying on Christ. Every day, understanding that it is him. Every day, understanding that he has already given us what we don't deserve. And we can put our hope and our trust and our faith and our confidence and our insecurities, and all of our baggage, and everything that we bring throughout every moment of all our day, we can put it all on the hope of Christ.
Let's pray together. So God, we thank you for this. We thank you that you have given us this hope. We thank you uh, that you have uh, shown us who you are. And so, Father, just as Moses reminded the people, hey, remember what Miriam did. Don't, don't do that. Father, help us to read this text and have the same heart attitude. Let's remember what Miriam did and let's not help us not to be this way. Help us to take on humility. Help us to walk forward in your grace and in your mercy. And as we seek what you have for us in our lives, Father, help us to grow, to become more like you each and every day day. We thank you for this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.